Now, in that passage that I read to you, just prior to our sermon passage, uh, there the the the, uh, the verses from six to twelve. Um, we read there about what John wrote about those three who testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And he wrote about them. He wrote about these three testifiers to show Christians that the foundation of their faith in Jesus Christ is a solid foundation built not only upon the prophets and apostles, but upon also upon the, the testimony of the Holy Spirit and of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, who is the divine author of all Scripture and who abides in every believer together with the testimonies of the water of Christ's baptism and the blood that flowed from his wounds that he received on Calvary, provide us with the truth. Now, just a quick aside there. just came across recently, social media has good things and bad things. And recently came across a discussion between Christians where one person was making a strong stand that it's not just the, the, the words that are in red letters that are divinely inspired and authoritative, but that all Scripture is authoritative and equally authoritative. And, and you wouldn't believe the number of people who pounced on this person and said, that is not true, this is a hill that I will die on, the words of Jesus Christ are supreme. And everything else in Scripture that isn't written by Jesus Christ, that wasn't spoken by Him, is subordinate, is less than. Well, that is not what Scripture teaches. It's not what Jesus himself taught, who regularly quoted Scripture from the Old Testament that he didn't speak himself uh, as a a person in the Old Testament. And so all Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture, whether it was uttered by the mouth of Jesus Christ or not, has the same divine author. Now, despite the fact that many English translations have a a subject header between verses 12 and verse 13 uh, in chapter 5, John is actually continuing the thought in our passage that he began in the previous one. And that's why I wanted to read those verses preceding our sermon passage this morning. He's saying essentially that because you believe the testimony of the Spirit, the water, and the blood, you may know that you have eternal life. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe the testimony of these three things. And so, the person who believes in Jesus Christ can know with certainty that he or she will live for eternity with God. Brothers and sisters, that may feel like an arrogant thing to you, but it's not. It's not. Not if you truly believe. Not if you understand that your salvation is not based on your works, it's not based on anything you've done, it's not based on your inherent righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then it's not arrogant. It's actually quite the opposite. It's humble. It's recognizing that Jesus Christ has done for you something that you can't do for yourself. So knowing that we will live for eternity with God, it gives us confidence to approach the throne of God in prayer. And that's why John goes from that knowledge, that certainty of salvation to the confidence that we have in prayer. Even praying for someone we see sinning. And so when we are assured of our standing before God, we don't shrink back in servile fear from Him. We can boldly approach Him knowing that we are His son or His daughter. We're His child. And so we go to to Him boldly, not out of fear. As we work our way through the passage today, I would ask you to to hold this thought. True believers in Jesus Christ may be infallibly assured that they are in the state of grace and will persevere to eternal life. 
Let me say that again. True believers in Jesus Christ may be infallibly assured that they are in the state of grace and will persevere to eternal life. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first, you may know. The second, the power of prayer. And the third, the deathly sin. Again, you may know is the first part. The second is the power of prayer. And the third is the deathly sin. So let's look at the first part of the sermon this morning. You may know. John writes in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now this isn't the first time that John has given his readers a purpose statement. He's giving them the purpose statement. The reason he wrote this letter to this church was so that they may know that if they believe in Jesus Christ, they have eternal life. But it's not the first time he's done this kind of thing. He did the same thing in his gospel where he wrote in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so in these two purpose statements, John makes it clear who the intended audience is for in each book. For his gospel, John says, it's written for evangelistic purposes. So that those who don't know Jesus might come to believe in him. For this letter, John is writing, uh, John says that he's written it for the purpose of building up and encouraging those who already do believe in Jesus Christ. But the message is very similar, isn't it? To those who don't believe, he gives them the gospel. To those who do believe, he gives them the gospel. This is what we need. Unbelievers need it, believers need it. We need to feast upon it. We're just as desperate for it as those who don't know Jesus. And so he writes, so that you may know that you have eternal life. But the use of the word may before know is not intended to convey doubt. And that's important for us to to understand. It's not like John is saying uh, something like, uh, you might know that you have eternal life, but you might not. He's he's not intending to, uh, to communicate equivocacy here. As we've already seen, John is giving us his purpose statement. So the clause that you may know is a purpose clause. John isn't expressing the possibility or even the probability that you might know that you have eternal life. He is saying, he's saying it this way, I write these things so that or in order that you may know. So what John is saying is, if you believe in the name of the Son of God, you can know with certainty that you have eternal life. You can trust this. That doesn't mean that you will always have it with certainty. It doesn't mean that you won't have doubts. It doesn't mean that your, your, your assurance of salvation won't sort of wax and wane. It does in the life of every believer at some point or probably multiple points throughout his or her life. It does. But your sense of assurance is not the certain guarantee that you are saved. But if you are saved, you can have it. That's the point. This is what the the Westminster Larger Catechism refers to as an infallible assurance. And so this doesn't mean that if you don't have what you would call an infallible assurance, that you therefore must not be saved. It's not what John is saying. If people didn't have uncertainties about their assurance of salvation, John wouldn't have needed to write this letter in order to help bolster their assurance of salvation. 
the Westminster Confession of Faith, it has a very helpful section in its chapter on assurance of salvation, chapter 18, uh, paragraph 4, which speaks about the fact that true believers in Christ may have their assurance of salvation shaken and diminished or even interrupted. There are, there are things in life that cause our assurance uh, to, to grow stronger, and there are things in life that cause our assurance to grow weaker. If you are engaged in habitual sin, you better believe that that's going to shake your assurance. It just will. If, if you go through hardship, if you suffer loss, many, many times, not always, but many, many times, it will shake your assurance of salvation, your sense of It may cause you to question the goodness of God. And when that happens, how can God be good if he allowed this thing to happen in my life? When you start asking those kinds of questions, it can absolutely have an impact on your assurance of salvation. The, the confession of faith that gives a number of reasons why these things might happen, such as neglecting to, to preserve our assurance or falling into some sin that wounds our conscience and grieves the Holy Spirit. But then it continues on saying this, yet true believers are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Some of you know doubts and you have experienced lack of assurance, perhaps for a majority of your Christian life. Some do experience that. We don't wish that on anyone, but there, there are those who just struggle. There, there are those for whom... The Christian walk, it's not as easy as it appears to be for other people. That doesn't mean that you aren't saved. For some reason that you may not ever know in this lifetime, the Lord's portion to you is a portion that causes you to doubt your assurance. Not to throw the blame on the Lord at all. There are some people who simply have harder lives than others. For one reason or another. But we have to trust that God is good and that his plan is perfect and he is wise and that despite the hardships we face in life that he loves us and even the hardships are intended for his glory and for the good of his people. And so you can have true faith in Christ and yet your assurance of salvation can seem stronger at certain points in your life, weaker at other points. But the fact is, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ, you can know with certainty that you have been given eternal life with Him. You don't have to walk through this life in constant fear of losing your salvation. I remember having a friend in college. He did not grow up in, in, a, in a, a, a church that, that understood uh, with, with great robustness the, the perseverance or preservation of the saints. So this, that's really kind of the doctrine we're getting at this morning. In fact, the, the denomination they grew up in, they taught the exact opposite. That you could lose your faith, you lose your salvation multiple times a day. And that's exactly what he believed. And so he was in constant fits and, and turmoil because at any given day he might have lost his salvation three or four times. It's, it, it's somewhat humorous. We, we, you know, College-age boys, we, we made fun of him for it. It was kind of cruel, but it was also pitiful. It was sad. And we were grateful for the day when he came to, to understand a little bit better the doctrines of grace. It took, it, took some, it took some time for him to come to that point. We understood passages like Romans 8 
passages like the one we're in this morning. You can have assurance. And this assurance is not grounded on all of the good works that you have done. It's not grounded upon how much money you give to the church. It's not grounded on how many hours you pray or read your Bible every day. Though those things may be great and important. You don't look to yourself in order to get assurance of your salvation. Your assurance is grounded on what God has done for you in giving you new life, in giving you faith in Christ Jesus, in justifying you by His declaration of your innocence because your sins were imputed to Christ and His righteousness has been imputed to you. Your assurance isn't based on what you have done or how strong your faith is. It's based on what God and the person of Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the reason you can have, you can have an infallible assurance in this life of your salvation. So, if you're struggling, if you're questioning your faith, if you're questioning the Lord, if you're having questions about your, your salvation, I would encourage you to do this. Look to the Lord. Trust in the Lord. Read the Bible. The passages about what Jesus Christ has done for you. Sure, read the words in red if you've got a red letter Bible, if you have that. Absolutely. But read the words in black too. Because they're the ones that talk about what Jesus did. And we need to know what Jesus has done. And when you read it, tell yourself, Jesus Christ did this for me. A sinner. He did it for me. And do that for a while. Perhaps for a long while. And see if your assurance doesn't grow stronger over time. That brings us to the second part of the sermon, the power of prayer. In verses 14 and 15, John writes this, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Knowing with full assurance that you have eternal life and that no one and no thing can take it away from you gives you confidence when it comes uh, to praying to the Lord. When you know these things, you can come boldly before Him. Make your requests known to Him. Yes, you're praying for the will of the Lord to be done. This is what we prayed a few minutes ago when we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. You pray for the will of the Lord to be done. Absolutely. But, But boldly, you come before Him. Lord, my desire is this. I make known my my desire to You. I recognize that what I want may not be the same thing that You want. It may not be what your will is for me or for this situation. But I make my desires known to you and I pray that your will be done. You're laying it before the Lord, but you're doing so boldly. You're not doing so fearfully. You're not doing so doubtingly. Asking, but thinking in the back of your mind, well, the Lord's not going to do this for me. He doesn't care. Our confidence, like our assurance, is not based on anything that we have done. So our confidence shouldn't be confused with arrogance here. It is precisely because of what Christ has done for us, which has been credited to us, that gives us confidence. And one commentator describes our confidence in prayer as the result of the believer's assurance. 
He says that the believer can have confidence and boldness in relation to God. In particular, this applies to the situation of making requests to God in prayer. When you think about it, it's true, of course. You think about the, the Acts method of praying, that, that, that pattern for prayer, uh, ac- uh, ac- uh, adoration and, and uh, confession and thanksgiving and supplication. And, and the adoration and the thanksgiving part. There's, rarely are we coming before the Lord trepidatiously when we are adoring Him, we're praising Him in our prayers, when we're giving thanksgiving to Him. We're very bold when we do such things. It's when we get to the, the confession part and the supplication part, we're a little more sheepish. It's those parts that are important to remember that we can come boldly before Him. We can come confidently before Him. Now John has already discussed confidence in prayer back in chapter uh, 3, verses 21 and following, where he wrote, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. We have confidence because we know that we have eternal life. But in verse 14, John is saying that we can be confident that if we ask anything according to God's will, He hears us. Jesus Himself prayed for God's will to be done, even as Jesus boldly asked His Father to take away the cup of suffering from Him that He was about to endure on the cross. Father, take this cup from me. However, thy will be done. Jesus did not look forward to the cross. He didn't look forward to the pain of the cross. He didn't look forward to the wrath that was going to be poured out upon him on the cross. It's understandable. Nevertheless, he wanted his Father's will to be done. This is how we are to be. We are to pray for God's will to be done. Even though the Father certainly heard the Son, even as Christ boldly asked His Father to take away that cup of suffering that He was about to endure on the cross, He heard Him, but His answer was that Christ would go to the cross. God's will will be done. And so when we pray for His will to be done, we are acknowledging that. We are indicating our desire to submit to God's will. And think about this, brothers and sisters. If you pray fervently for something, you want it with all of your heart, you believe that this is the right thing, whatever it is you're praying for, and God does not answer you in the way that you want. He doesn't doesn't give you that thing that you're asking for. He, He doesn't deliver you from the illness from which you're suffering or someone you love is suffering. Remember this, that you're in good company. Because Jesus Christ prayed that that cup would be passed, that it would go past him. He wouldn't have to drink that cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of destruction, the cup of hell. But it was his Father's will to crush him for our iniquities. And Jesus Christ submitted to his Father's will. And that's what we're called to do as well. When we pray, we're making known to God our desires. And when we pray for His will to be done, we are confessing His sovereignty over all things and recognizing the reality that His answer to our prayer might be very different than the answer that we get. 
His answer to our prayer may be very different from the answer we've asked for. We shouldn't make our prayers like a birthday wish list. And yet, the boldness with which a child makes his wish list is, a, is kind of like the boldness that we ought to have when we come before our Father in prayer. We don't want to just make a litany of things that we want, like a Christmas list or something like that. But think about this, when our children do that kind of thing, they're doing so with great confidence. And that's the kind of confidence that we ought to have. When John uses the word hears in verses 14 and 15, the word means to hear favorably. If we pray for God's will to be done, then whatever God does in response to our prayers is a favorable response. That's what John means in verse 15. And then in verse 16, he gives a remarkable example of how God hears our prayers. He says in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. It goes on to to elaborate on this. Every sin except one does not lead to death for the professing Christian. And here John is speaking of spiritual death or eternity in hell as punishment for sin. But he's saying if you see a brother or sister sinning in any way, you ought to pray for that person. Let me put you on the spot here for a second. You don't have to raise your hand. But when you see a brother or sister sinning, someone you know, someone from this church you know, you see it later on today in the fellowship meal. I don't know. You know somebody said, not your pastor getting a little too much food in the food line. All right? Although that could be sinful, but probably not. But you see someone doing something you know is absolutely wrong. Not, not in a gray area, not some kind of arbitrary standard that you've made that you're now applying to other people, and those kinds of things. Clearly violating God's law. What is your first impulse? Is it to pray for that person? I'm going to say I doubt it. Not, I don't mean to talk badly of you. I love you. <laughs> but I know the human heart. I know my own. I guess I'm extrapolating outward from there. Our tendency oftentimes is to not pray that the person would stop sinning, but commit a sin of our own. The sin of gossip. The sin of uh, violating the ninth commandment. Doing harm with our words, with our mouths. But John is saying, when you see a brother or sister sinning, you don't go gossip, you don't go running to someone else and tell somebody, did you see what so-and-so did? Did you see how much food the pastor had on his plate? You don't do that. And John is not saying that you go to the person first thing and confront them with their sin. It's not saying you don't confront them at some point. But that doesn't seem to be the first thing you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pray for that person, that brother, or that sister. You lift them up in prayer. You pray that the Lord would deliver them from that sin. That's love. That's that's putting the matter in the hands of the ones in whose hands it belongs. And that's what the Lord calls us to do. We have to be so careful when we see a brother or a sister sinning. We have to ask God, rather than gossiping about a person, we ask God to restrain them from sin, bring them to repentance. I know I've been guilty of the sin of, of, of flapping my jaws 
to other people about something I've seen someone do rather than going to the Lord and begging to the Lord for that person to be brought to repentance. Sometimes we even tell those kinds of things to other people in a form of a prayer request. That is just gossip in, 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 in holy type garb. You see a brother or sister sitting. That is between you and the Lord. You pray to the Lord. You pray that the Lord by the Holy Spirit will convict that brother or sister. The last thing you should do is go blab it to other people. John is saying that we can be absolutely certain that when we see a fellow Christian committing a sin and when we pray for that person that God will answer our prayer, we can be absolutely certain that the will of God for that person, that brother or sister in Christ, is repentance and restoration. You know the will of the Lord in that case. You don't have to have any doubt And so when you pray for that person, you can trust that the Lord is going to bring that person back. Because it is God's will for none of His children to perish. And so when we pray for a wayward brother or sister, we can know infallibly that we are praying in accordance with God's will. And wouldn't you want your brother or sister praying for you if they saw you committing a sin? But there's one sin about which we maybe are not to pray. It's a little bit unclear. But that's going to take up the third and the final section of the sermon this morning. And that's the third part, the deathly sin. John said in verse 16 that if anyone sees his brother committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he shall ask and God will give that brother life. But then he adds at the end of the verse that there there is a sin that leads to death. And John says that we ought not to pray for that. He says something like, I'm not saying that you should pray for that. John is speaking here of the unforgivable sin, which we touched, uh, which is uh, talked about at various points at various times. If you see someone committing this sin, he's saying, don't necessarily pray for them. What is the unforgivable sin, though? Everybody wonders about this. And people, true believers, question whether they've committed the unforgivable sin. Somehow, unknowingly, have I done that thing which, which the Lord says if I do it, I'll be cast out forever. You shouldn't have to worry about that. You will know. The unforgivable sin is the refusal to believe the truth to which the Spirit, the water, and the blood testify that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh. That is active denial. That is active refusal to believe. That is the sin that in other places is called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, such as in Mark chapter 3, verse 29, and Luke chapter 12, verse 10. Jesus says there, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to call Him a liar. To put it in the language of 1 John, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to say that the Holy Spirit's testimony is not true. That it's false. But also, as Jesus shows in Matthew chapter 12, verses 26 to 30, it is to attribute to Satan that which the Holy Spirit does. Now you remember that in that particular case, the Pharisees were saying that Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan rather than by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The denial that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the eternally begotten Son of God who came and dwelt with human beings, the denial of all of the miraculous signs that Jesus performed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because essentially a person is saying that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit, that they are aligned with Satan. And that is truly blasphemous. This is the same sin that the author of Hebrews is talking about when he writes in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age, of, age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now notice in our passage that John does not use the term brother in reference to the one who commits the sin that leads to death. That term is reserved in verse 16 for the person who commits a sin that doesn't lead to death. A true Christian, a true follower of Jesus Christ, cannot commit the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. He will not permit you to blaspheme Him. But an unbeliever has no such constraints except for God's general restraint of sin in this world. An unbeliever is quite capable of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But also notice that John's wording at the end of verse 16, it's not a, it's not a direct command not to pray for those who have sinned the sin of, that leads to death. He writes, I do not say that one should pray for that. He says, pray for the one who, who sins a sin that doesn't lead to death. There's a sin that leads to death. I don't say to pray for that person. But elsewhere, John speaks quite directly when he does not want his readers to do something. In verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Here he is indirect. And I think it's because he understands how hard it would be for friends and family not to pray for a loved one who appears to have fallen away. And that's, that's the reality of it. You don't know. You don't know who has committed this sin. You can't know. But in the context of praying for our our passage, praying for someone who will never come to believe in Jesus Christ is in one sense futile because if a person will never truly believe in Jesus Christ, then then it is a prayer that is not according to God's will. And so if a person is sinning the sin that leads to death, we cannot expect our prayers for that person to be answered the way that we hope if we're praying for their repentance. John's emphasis here is on those who profess faith in Christ who have sinned sins that do not lead to death. And for those people, we are most certainly expected to pray. So you see a brother or sister, you see them violating a commandment. With the ten that we read earlier, pray for them. No violation of those commandments is a sin that leads to death. It's not the unforgivable sin. And when we do pray for them, we can have certain expectation that they will be restored by God's grace. True Christians are capable of sinning in a variety of ways. There's only one sin that Christians are not able to commit. And each of those sins, whether it is murder or adultery or false worship, will be forgiven. Now, it doesn't mean you should go out and sin freely. God commands you not to. But what it does mean is that when you do sin, You have brothers and sisters and more importantly an advocate on high who are interceding for you, 
praying for your repentance, praying for your restoration. As John says in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And so when you sin, brothers and sisters, ultimately what John is saying is that when you do sin, when you break one of the ten or all of the ten, and you sin, that you can still have assurance. You can still be restored. You are forgiven. And so, don't sin. Okay? Don't sin. But if you do, remember that Jesus is the Christ who came into the world to save sinners. And He is able, able to keep you from falling. He is able to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news.